Um, I think you'll all agree with me that was an incredibly rich body of stimulation. Um, we've now got half an hour for comments, questions. Comments and questions can come down the line to my email inbox if they so wish. You're welcome. Um, in the meantime, I also want to remind you that you can ask questions of each other. And if you've got something that you won't sleep tonight, if you realise dropped out at the end of your presentation, don't be shy to drop it in in any way. So, comments, questions open. Yes, yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, coming from art history, this is you know, a hugely rich and struggled over area, and I was really interested to hear each speaker's take on what seemed to us to be some $64,000 problems, the relationship between aesthetics and politics, art and politics, um, and how you theorise that, and then how you engage in practice. And... Um, I work on modern art and it, on contemporary, modern contemporary art, and it, it is increasingly an issue that is um, explored in some of that, you know, obscure theory that Mike was talking about. Um, but I also think there are some simple ways of framing it, and I'm going to try and do something very general. It seems to me that, um, in my view, there are multiple possibilities for that relationship to be worked through reflexively. Interestingly, I mean, we've had several examples today. One is through performance. Performance is clearly um, an incredibly powerful medium for getting across these issues, whether it's platforms for interventionist activist performance or it's um, the kind of more kind of subtle performance that you're talking about in relation to Oliana, which I think is one of the very interesting areas. Um, the idea that ambivalence and tension might um, create a space in which those issues can be debated, which seems to me to relate to some of the things that Mike was actually talking about, because coming from visual arts, the problem is not so much the performance. Performance art is a very um, engaging and active and environmental medium. It's, it's two-dimensional forms of photography and or film and so on that raise some of the very difficult questions, I think, about how the genre can engage. And it seems to me what Mike was saying about the need for this tension between the aesthetics, a kind of reflexive aesthetics, I've called it, and the message, whatever you want to call it, the politics, is one of these very tricky areas that is constantly being debated. And there's um, someone who's written quite a lot about this, quite in quite a difficult way, perhaps, is TJ Demos, who's a sort of art historian, who has, and I'm just quoting him because it seems to me I'm, I'm not going to go on much more, but he is seeking what he describes as a, a critical realism, which is one that scrutinises, one that enables you to question, to scrutinise, rather than naturalise. And it seems to me that Mike was saying something along those lines, that it's no good um, having a fantasy of a kind of objective representation that art might just reproduce in all the debates around the document. Signal, don't talk about that. But that you that, that the visual arts, particularly two-dimensional art photography, needs to create a kind of realism that contains within it an ambivalence, which relates to what um, was said in relation to, for instance, Oliana. And that that ambivalence, that tension between the aesthetics and the kind of underlying issues, has huge potential for generating and developing debates that might go in all sorts of directions, but actually increase visibility of these issues. And that's just my take on that. 
Before I go to you as a panel, I want to see if anyone I see, George nodding vigorously. I don't know if anyone else wants to come in and add a comment or question related to that. You're allowed to just nod if you want, George. <laughs> no, 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 I just agree with what <laughs> Okay. okay. Um, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I agree with that. Um, but I think the other half of the problem for me, perhaps is the bigger issue, um, as opposed to sort of the various powers of the different art forms, is the issue of targeting and how do you create change. Now, one of the things that I was involved with when I left industry was setting up Solar Century, an environmental company with um, the ex-head of science at Greenpeace, Jeremy Leggett. And for 10 years, we fought to keep that company going, um, being attacked by Tory and Labour um, governments mm -hmm. that wanted to create a nuclear future for Britain um, or a fracking oil. Um, and the only time they moved in terms of their policy towards green, politi green policies was when there was a little bit of research showing that Middle England those fringe, those, those, that 20% of floating voters actually might be interested in green votes. And suddenly thought, tourism and, uh, and Labour were trying to fight for the green votes for the Liberal Democrats. So they were interested in, it's that middle ground of Britain where I think in terms of changing policy is going to be affected, not necessarily the art medium or, that is being used to, to get across these issues. For me, it's about targeting and simplification of message. Um, yeah. Kevin, do you want to add something to that? Um, this, there's something quite interesting about sure. the fact that you're working very much with the, uh, the credit gained for the oil majors in working in these, you know, discrete, mm -hmm. actually culturally rather discrete spaces. Mm -hmm. um, are you attending to the wrong audience in the work you're doing? Well, I don't, in terms of attending to the wrong audience, it, it might totally struck a chord with me because I also see the, um, the kind of culturally elite spheres as being incredibly uh, restrictive and very kind of problematic in terms of uh, class race breakdown of, of who you're speaking to as part of that. So I totally agree with you. The, the flip side for me on that in terms of Liberate Tate's work, which is Liberate Tate and not platform, I can't kind of stress enough, is the, say for instance, the, the kind of the, com, the communications element of that has meant that, for instance, some of those performances have featured on Have I Got News For You, which is a kind of opportunity to kind of break out into a much more mass uh, audience. Um, but the, the, the main, I agree with you on all your points, and I agree with you, the, the main kind of thing I would tease out that I differ on is I think it's such a... Um, a, a pitfall of the left again and again and again to fall back on the all we need to do is present the information argument and it's just a question of boiling information down into a, a kind of palatable form because I think, and this is where I think the cultural angle is, is interesting, it's how to take that information and create stories and narratives and frames of references that then you can speak to that Middle England or, or whoever um, but I think the Dealing with climate change, I think falling back on the information and the facts about the situation has been one of the biggest fault, you know, things that we're in the dire situation we are, we are now. I would absolutely not um, recommend just presenting the facts in a cold. Yeah. But I, I think it's finding who you need to talk to first. Mm -hmm. Simplifying the data into... I mean, we have a fantastic fact now that 97% of scientists believe that climate change mm -hmm. is caused by um, human activity and a serious issue. That in itself, 
as a single message. Mm-hmm. If it got out um, to the mainstream Britain, in, in the, that was then dramatised, mm-hmm. which is what commercial um, and professional communication mm-hmm. companies can do. Um, then you have that, that mm-hmm. impact. But artists tend to create huge impact and emotional connection on issues to do with themselves. The work is always about themselves, mm-hmm. whereas commercial communicators work on the brief at hand and don't put themselves mm-hmm. into that. And that's the key difference. Um, I was in that world, I'm now in this. I don't want to go back to the world I hate it, because mm-hmm. 90% of it is promoting brands and industries I don't approve and agree with. But I can see the value now. Because I remember with Greenpeace, um, a couple of issues we worked with, Greenpeace were incredibly focused on organisation. Um, uh, just one example, quickly, which was um, there was a Ford in the end of the 80s were bringing um, their cars into Britain, like the NEC, the biggest car show in the world, and they, they didn't bother putting catalytic converters on their, um, on their uh, um, cars. And uh, Greenpeace came to said, we've got to change. We've tried everything. They won't change the policy. So on the, the day of the um, actual uh, uh, launch at the NEC, the chairman of Forbes came and flew in his private jet. And we basically got one of those 200-foot lorries to park and block the entrance with basically F-U-G-B, which is fuck you, Great Britain, basically on it. So Ford refused to put Catholic converters on their um, cars. And by the time he got from outside of his helicopter and into the NEC, he changed his speech and he changed the policy for Ford. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the point about it was very focused. It was on a specific day, the launch of that particular um, car show. And it was, it was, there was a hundred facts we could have thrown at Ford, but they got it down to one thought. Ford refusing to do this in, in Europe. So that's an example of a simple message presented at the right time in a powerful, simple way. And I think the science community needs to start getting these very powerful facts that are coming out and thinking about presenting simple facts to the broad audiences and then developing on those things. Thanks. Before I go to starting with Peter, Neil and Jan, I'm going to re- uh, say something I should have said at the beginning. People catching this in audio later or on the screen will want to know who you are. We all want to know who you are. Just give us a sentence on that. And uh, thank you to our previous con- contribution from Anne Perry from Art History at the Open University. <laughs> Jill <laughs> Perry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, thanks. Peter. Peter Gingold, um, I run an organisation called Tipping Point, which um, is very much engaged with, I'll call it, helping artists find ways to work in this area. And I... I hope I'm not going to sound offensive in responding to Mike's uh, implicit challenges. Um, and I've noted a couple of his questions. Are artists the right people to rely on to, rely on to communicate, communicate climate change? Well, I put it slightly differently. A lot of artists do want to do that. So, you know, and I can't quite see the point in trying to stop them, as it were. Um, is the art gallery the best arena to create interest in climate change? Um, quite possibly not. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think my comment from having observed the evolution of the last nine years that we've been working is that um, actually, and this is, I think, just to a degree to the credit of the UK, where our cultural vision is quite a lot broader than thinking about just in the art gallery and the main stage uh, in, in the West End, um, it's getting both more complex, richer, and spreading out way beyond the, the gallery and the main stage. It's happening in all sorts of fun places. And um, I think 
I think I'm probably not speaking just for myself or indeed all the artists we work with to, in saying that it's such a difficult issue to deal with, so very difficult to find the language to um, tell the story that you want to tell, whatever that might be, that it takes you really rather a long time to work out how the hell to do it. And uh, it's only now that we can see from the body of work that is there that we can actually start to reflect on, you know, just just use our analytical faculties and think, well, you know, how does that work? How, how, how does this, these different sorts of um, pieces of work deliver, if you like? Um, that, that I think the, the, um, the insights are starting to come as to how, how, how this, sort of, these, this sort of work should be presented. Um, it's taking a long time, and, and, but I think I, I, I really don't think it's true that all uh, all this work is personal. I think I, I think it's I think we could talk about this later. Mm-hmm. Lots of examples where it's much much broader than that, and um, I think we, we are seeing a state of evolution. It's moving fairly fast. Uh, it would be nice if it moved faster, uh, but uh, it, things are developing. I would say. Before I go to the next, does this do directly? Yeah, go on, go on. Okay, I was just going to say, it's like a lot of people are. Remind us who you are. Sorry, Sarah Williams from the Business School. Um, My work looks at how individuals make sense of climate change. And I wanted to reinforce really what you've just been saying there, because I think it's not just whether people believe in climate change or not. I think we have moved past that. And from my work, I suggest it's more about how individuals believe in climate change. And I think the point is that the more conservative someone is, conservative with a big C politically, conservative as in wanting to maintain the status quo, the more conservative someone is, the more likely they are to believe that climate change is natural. And so are dismissing the rest of this debate. Um, but I think there's a risk in oversimplifying the message because this is very complex and we can recognise climate change as a socially constructed idea where it is more about the facts. If you have too simple a message, you're only engaging people at a cognitive level and they're not necessarily meaning anything personal to them. Climate change, you know, is understood through our values, and I think that's where art actually has a huge opportunity to engage with people, because you're engaging people at a very personal level, and you never know where that epiphany is going to come from, where that connection is going to come from. So what you're doing, a big part of change. Now, I remember my father, you know, he, he reads The Telegraph. But there was a fantastic photo in there a few years ago about the plastic island of the Pacific. That changed how he thought about environmental issues. So you never know. You don't necessarily know the impact you're having. Thank you. Thanks. Do you want... Yeah. Kelly, would you like to um, respond? In my research, one of the um, ways in which, um, within the contemporary art world, um, artists have been able to... Um, it has been suggested that um, artists can really um, engage with the issues is um, through uh, phenomenology. So, um, for instance, like the work of Oliver Eliasson, and he has the, um, the large exhibition at Tate where he um, installed the sun, um, the weather project. Um, but 
it's these types of um, works that can actually, you can get a sense, really a sensory experience of the weather or climate or the environment um, in a way that you can, only, you can only get it through that experience. And that's one of the, one of the ways that um, it's been explored. Thanks, Kenny. I think part, for me, part of the, the kind of tension in this is, is an over-policing of the boundaries as to what, what constitutes art and what constitutes uh, intervention or engagement. Because for me, the kind of type of thing that you're talking about with the Greenpeace thing, that to me is a, is a very performative... Uh, and there's no, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't, shouldn't be considered a, an amazing cultural intervention. Yeah. And I think kind of part of the role of... Um, cultural practitioners is to inform that in a way to give it more resonance in a way that sometimes activists can be quite lacking in imagination and how they go about these things because I think lots of demonstrations are effectively really bad performance art because it's very flat and very it's not very engaging and turns a lot of people off and I really think that the, 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 the sweet spot certainly for with Liberate Tate's practice is that you have uh, a, a bunch of people coming from the art world really teasing out the aesthetic and rehearsing them as performances and then you have a bunch of activists who are sort of prodding people a bit further in terms of what they're, how far they're prepared to go to transgress uh, spaces and legality and so on. Can I respond to you? Yeah, go on quickly. Uh, yeah. Very quickly. I absolutely don't want to respond. Don't stop. You know, artists getting involved in this. And I came to the first tipping point in 2005, and it was inspirational, fantastic. I met some great artists and scientists, and we want more of that. That's not the issue. I just think on top of this spread out communications and individual projects, we need to have a central strategy, a focused strategy, because the opposition are really well organised. And I know something about this. The oil industry hire communications companies mm -hmm. to do this. So does the nuclear industry. And personally speaking, on Monday, after, Monday evening after that program, uh, a, commu a communications company that worked in two scientific groups would have responded on Tuesday morning to Channel 4 program with a very powerful message. And I think... Um, we need both. We need positive action. We need the work the platform doing. But we also, I feel, need a central message where simplified messages are got across. And I don't believe the job, somebody said the job has been done getting across uh, the issue of climate change. It hasn't because there are more sceptics now. The number of sceptics has gone up the last five years in Britain. We have a Chancellor of Exchequer and a head of the environment who don't believe in climate change plus a good percentage of the Tory backbench. And they're getting away with policies now that are designed to kill the solar industry, reduce kill wind now in favour of fracking, in favour of oil and a nuclear future. The job isn't done, and they need to be hit really hard, and that requires, to me, almost a kind of military-like, uh, if you like, attitude from the scientific community, as well as all these other things that infiltrate culture from all levels. So, going to the scientific community, as if you haven't got enough to do, Neil. Are you ready? <laughs> Introduce yourself and then offer your question. You might want to respond to that as well. Thanks, Joe. Well, it's Neil Evans from the OU Science Faculty Earth System Modeler. So I'm a very computer modeler brigade. Um, and I think there's a very interesting parallel between the scientific community and the artistic community in that most of the time we're both talking to a very small um, community and not communicating mass communication. So it means in science, in academia, there's a big, big um, emphasis on, on trying to make that impact all the time, um, trying to 
hit those messages that actually do um, go viral and uh, hit the big, big media and make impact. But I just, what I wanted to say actually was to make a small distinction in relation to the example of the Storms program and the earlier Channel 4 program that there is a big difference between the message that's given and the message that's actually received. So I just question whether many people seeing that program would have, um, the message that was given, as you say, was not a very not a very uh, on-message climate change one, but um, um, you know, may, my question is whether two months later, the next time people vote, the message that's got through to them is storms are really big scary things, and from somewhere else in their experience, storms are, are somehow related to climate change in some way that I don't understand. In other words, the net final message of that programme would actually have been the right one. Um, and then, you know, as definitely as a non-expert, um, I wonder whether simple messages in general are dangerous because simple messages probably filter down to both communities and their ultimate effect is just reinforced position, whereas the messages that really have impact are the surprise messages, messages that come from somewhere other and change your perception, and those are the things that artists are probably really good at. I've got... If, George, is that on this particular point? I've got... You two want to come in? Is it on this point, or is it entering a new one? Only on this point. On this point. So Robert first, then, and then you're also on this point. Well, it's kind of responding to what's just been said, really. So whether that's. I'm guessing. Go with George, and then Robert. Fine. Um, George, George, George. Um, I just think, um, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to what's just been said about you know having a, a single message to address the. Um, the publicity machine of the oil industry, etc. And I'm, but I'm really kind of, like many academics in order to be really kind of find that a bit difficult. I think we should think about our, what some of us do as educators and the need to go out to meet publics, people, students, others. And it seems to me the way to make change is to get some sort of debate going, to engage people in the conversation in whatever way that is. And I was really impressed with the stuff about the... Um, the idea of the theatre and the ambivalence and ambiguity and how that gets people talking. Once you get people talking, then that's the start of something. And, and, and that's where you can start to fuel people beginning to think of the right kind of thing, rather than simply hitting them with the facts or hitting them with very simple propaganda. Um, and it seems to me that what we need is strategies which not only engage with the physicality of the science, and this is where the notion of critical realism is both a good thing and possibly a problem, but with the, the, with the experience of people's lives too. So we need to find a way of engaging with people in their daily lived realities in ways which get them to question themselves and question what they're doing for themselves. Um, and that sense of disturbing the familiar that we had from the platform example seems to be a really interesting set of possibilities for doing that. And that it's in starting a conversation and getting people to ask critical questions about themselves that we stand some sort of a chance of changing values. Thank you. That was George Rebel from Geography. Robert. I'm Robert Chris. I'm not long ago... Uh, um, PhD student here at the OU, the geography department. In fact, in fact, the same vintage as Kelly. I finished mine last year, um, and it was around uh, the subject of geoengineering. 
I'm now visiting fellow here at uh, in, in the uh, political and international studies department. Now, I want to pick up a particular point that Peter Kingold made earlier and, and bring it into the general discussion because it seems to me to be critical to this whole debate. Peter mentioned the fact that um, you know artists want to discuss this, and the problem is that it's a very difficult issue to know how to discuss. And in the talks, we've heard a, a series of um, analogies to other propositions. We heard about smoking, we heard about um, uh, the catalytic um, uh, converters, and one or two others. But to me, the central issue here is that climate change is a problem that is genuinely unique. I mean, the, the, the expression that there's nothing new under the sun is a very hackneyed one, but actually in the case of climate change, it is genuinely uh, unique and, 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 and hasn't occurred before. And it hasn't occurred before because, unlike all these other things, uh, it, is, it has an extraordinary temporal and, and spatial scale. So, whereas all these other issues we've discussed and could have brought in the ozone layer and the, the, Montreal, the Montreal Protocol have operated um, on a small scale. Smoking, this is about personal behaviour. Catalytic converters, this is about local pollution and so on and so forth. These are all kind of local scale things. But here, the problem is, the problem is so vast that the individual is virtually disempowered. There is nothing that the individual or even communities on their own can do to resolve this problem. And I think it's a kind of well-established um, empirical fact that, that when confronted with the apocalypse, people just turn off. It's very difficult to engage people by, by warning them of catastrophe until after the catastrophe has happened, and then they kind of they, they lock in. And so, the, the, to me, one of the challenges here, and, it, and it's either a challenge or it's totally irrelevant, and, and I'm not quite sure which, but is that there is, seems to be a logic that's running through. <laughs> there seems to be a logic that's running through this whole discussion that art will increase if it is if it is whatever whatever form is um, is deployed within the community. It will engage people in a way which will make them more aware, which will lead by some process that is not clearly defined to some kind of political engagement that will eventually result in climate change being more um, uh, properly addressed than it certainly has been for the last uh, several decades. And I want to question that, because actually, I, I mean, uh, you might put up that nice little chart with the, uh, the uh, people that are already convinced, and the people that will never be convinced, and the people, this large section of people in the middle. But even if you get these people in the middle to move over to the left-hand side and to be convinced, there's nothing that they can actually do in their personal lives that is immediately going to impact this question. So art somehow has to get people to be empowered politically on an extraordinary scale. It has to be global. Because even if the UK, even if the EU um, became carbon zero tomorrow, carbon neutral, it still wouldn't actually address the problem. And just by attacking any one of the oil producers or the other oil companies actually isn't going to address the issue either. Thanks, Robert. I'm going to ask, I've got three people who want to come in, but we really have run out of time. I'm going to let Jan, because he's been so patient, and then I'm going to ask you all to give final responses. Yeah, I was wondering, like, 
Yeah, I struggle to introduce yourself. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm Jan van Lutten. I'm a geography PhD student at OU. And while listening to all the presentations, I struggled with understanding um, the claim and reading of some of the artworks as having a natural, uh, like a neutral voice, the Platinsky's work, and Mike saying that he wanted to be objective with some of the photographs, and a play described as being dispassionate. And I think I, what was missing for me is to discuss the, the very techniques of the artwork and the artistic choices that have been made and how this also influences the, the actual the political message or the, the politics of the artwork itself. So what kind of material is used? For example, Bratinsky, I think he has a lot of assistance to make these photographs because it's like an analog process. And it's, so, yeah, I was interested in what kind of comments. Thank you. I should say we're going to stop after each of them have had one more go um, with then close proceedings, but actually we can carry on the conversation for 15 minutes, um, but we should stick to time for uh, the cameraman's sake, apart from anything else. In no particular order other than the fact that we started this way, Kelly, would you like to um, respond? Um, I, I should respond to the question about Brzezinski. Um In my research, I merely went to the exhibition and saw them in situ. Um, so I didn't really investigate how he actually makes his photographs. Um, I think for me, with the Brzezinski, what is really important is the way in which they were shown at the Royal Academy. Um, they literally were just on the wall with a little um, uh, plaque that just said the place. It just said that it was in Alberta. Um, it didn't... There was no... There wasn't any um, extra verbiage about what the tar sands are or why they're problematic. It was merely the image. Um, and so the only way you could read that politically is if you had prior knowledge about the tar sands and what... what what they are. Um, so I think the, someone going to the gallery who wasn't familiar with the tar sands could just look at it as a beautiful image. Um, and I think what he really works on is having that length of ambiguity between how much knowledge you bring to, to the photograph. If you, if you have that knowledge, it can be read as being a very political um, piece of work, and his entire oil series you could, could be read as being very political, but when you look at a single image, um, they can be just quite beautiful. Um, so I think art works really well in, in enabling, sort of it brings discomfort to you in looking at the piece of work to think, well that's quite beautiful, but in actuality what, what's causing that? Um, it sort of makes you reflect upon that. So I just think that's um, one of the strengths of the artworks. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin? Um, I agree with you totally in, in terms of the uh, disempowerment of the apocalypse. Uh, and I think doing, engaging in this at all requires a certain leap of faith that other people in other sectors and other countries are coming at it with the same approach of, of, of pushing for change. And so I... I I just don't think you can kind of shut down the possibility of any action based on pessimism about other countries and other communities. And I also think it's about individuals in their particular relationship to institutions 
depend how much uh, agency they have in those pushing those institutions to make the, the change. And I think it's I think pushing for institutional changes is much more important than uh, changing light bulbs, the kind of light bulbs and lifestyles discourse. And I think, like, just say for instance, in this, this is one sector. People, uh, lots of people are tape members. Lots of people are art practitioners. Uh, and, and I think they should be pushing for that change directly in the sector rather than voting one particular way in the hope of, as well as voting in, you know, voting for climate action. Um, and in terms of uh, choices in, in art practice, there's very big discussions for us about the, 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 the nature of the materials we're using and the, and the performers. We had a very big discussion, say, with the human cost performance about whether it was going to be uh, a, a naked male person or a naked female person and the implications and the kind of art context of, of that decision was very kind of important for us. We have lots of discussions about the oil-like substance that we've used, about how that looks in light and in terms of consistency and, and how that kind of enhances the, the piece or not. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Thank you. Mike? Um, yeah, yes, it's a complex subject, it's a huge subject, but that's not a reason for not trying to be more focused. And if you look at, say, Germany, where there is a greater awareness of the environmental dangers of um, releasing carbon, there are now government policies that are clearly addressing this in Germany so far ahead. We need to get to where Germany is. And the only reason those government policies are directed at green technologies is because it's a vote winner for the governments. They have to address green issues. And I think a, uh, we've never had in Britain a concerted, properly clear campaign to express what the problems are, what the science says, and in addition, though, as you say, to show the positives that can come from this, because Nicholas Stern, the ex-governor of the Bank of England, I think is one of the most articulate on this. He talks about this positive future of new, clean businesses with a whole new generation of new jobs um, in a new generation of, of, of of companies and, and resources, which can actually show a very positive future. And if you combine the two, then you, I think you do shift thinking and change policy amongst Tory and Labour government towards um, starting to um, invest and legislate in a better future. Um, and it's important, yeah. Robert, last word. Um, quickly, well, um, in my interest, as a, as a critic, obviously, it's in things that are very complicated and grey and complex rather than. Not that, I mean, there's absolute space for um, clear messages and things, but I'm looking particularly in theatre for the audience completing the play. It's a participatory experience. It's, it's Shakespeare says, peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. If it, it happens in the imagination of the audience, that's where the play takes place. My second point is that in a play, so I'm really not addressing climate change, I'm addressing the art form. In, in a good play, it's said every character is in the right so that the, every actor going on stage as a character is performing a character who thinks he is doing or she is doing the right thing by the right, um, uh, with the set of cards they've been dealt in life. And um, finally, I'd just quote Chekhov to say, you know, it's not the role of the artist to solve problems, it's the role of the artist to state the problem correctly. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much, all of you. Um, uh, we, we will now uh, release our colleagues who have to go and film something else. This is the Open University. Um, and uh, some of you may have meetings to go to, but I suggest, you know, there were two or three more questions and comments, um, I think, bubbling under. So we'll take another 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever feels natural, if you want to 
uh, nail some of those. And then we're going to go for lunch. Anyone can join us that would like to. Yeah. I, I know that uh, Bob and Parvati wanted to come in and Braden. Yeah. Keep introducing yourself so we know who everyone is. Renewable energy books and sustainable energy books and things like that. Um, so, my perspective is as a science writer who'd like to have nice pictures. And so, I spent a lot of time, you can write words, you just end up with pages of grey, right? So, but what if you want to make it attractive, you've got to have nice pictures. So, I spent an awful lot of time over the years peering into picture libraries. And it has been amazing how, over the years, wind turbines have become art objects. They are, uh, there's thousands of pictures of them. Um, and they're quite beautiful. And last week I was down at the seaside. If you stand on the seafront, the seafront at Herne Bay, you can see about four wind farms. You can see something like about 500 wind turbines. Um, and also, if you go in the shops right now, um, you know, the paintings you might buy, whereas in the past it was sailing the ship, it's now a little boat floating in front of the wind turbine, in front of the wind farm, right? It's wonderful pastel blues. So there, there's a, a change in art there, right? The other thing is that um, one of the videos we made for one of our courses was, I've always wondered what happened in hospital boiler rooms, because the hospital TV programme all about the operating program. But the energy business is in the boiler room. And so we did this video of combining power units uh, in hospital boiler rooms and making the hospitals energy efficient. Um, and the other day I went to my local hospital, Royal Free in Hampstead, and, um, you know, I'm walking down. They have a little art gallery in the corridor. And nice pictures of boats floating and things like that. Um, and then I sort of wondered, well, what happens in the boiler room? And I went home and looked. And there's this fantastic video of them installing a 5 megawatt um, gas-fired uh, gas turbine combined heat power unit. Um, uh, which will heat not only the hospital, but all of the entire block of flats down the road. And to me, this is art. And this should be hung on the wall, right, at the end of the art gallery, and say, well, here is an art installation. It's saving energy in your hospital. Appreciate this as art, as you would appreciate the wind turbine's art. Um, so... You know, I, to, to do these books, I trudge around taking pictures of the wood pellet loaders at Tilbury Bean Power Station and things like that. So this is it. You know, the science textbooks have got to have nice pictures. Wood pellet boiler as artwork. We uh, have a very open definition of art. That's good. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure which order to do this in, but I know the party wanted to come in, Braden and Robert. So this was really just going back to the point that Robert made, and um, no, I don't need to... Well, please, please do, so everyone knows. Okay, and I understand the camera will run until it's got to stop, so... Okay. <laughs> I'm the Geography Department Director of Open Space. 
Um, and I was to follow up on the point that Robert was making, I actually pick up on something that you said, which is on the relationship. You use the word ambiguity and ambivalence, and actually they mean very different things. And, and I think ambivalence is a very powerful category in responding to some of the points that you were making, because ambivalence is about having more than one value simultaneously. And yes, we might believe in that, you know, yes, time changes really problematic, we probably shouldn't drive a car, we shouldn't do this, but we also want to get somewhere fast, we also, so we live out those contradictions of our multiple values simultaneously. And I think in some ways it's quite interesting to th think about as not focusing on climate change as the problem, but about the other forms of values which have to accommodate this climate. Uh, and, and I think that's a very powerful because it's the, the multiple mediations which are possible. Uh, in through art forms, which really makes something, uh, you know, and very important because we have we live with diverse audiences, we do not know what their multiple values are. So, uh, something which is creative, which actually opens space rather than closes down or prescribes, can be very useful for, for that kind of uh, ambivalence rather than ambiguity. Well, one... Um thing that answers kind of both of your um, questions and answer addresses it, which is that in all the 15 years of um, growing the solar energy company solar century, what we found over that period was that the most powerful thing you can do to change behaviour is not to write great words, not to show fantastic imagery, not to write, write great um, copy, it's actually if you can get an individual to go into a house that's run on clean technology or to visit a company or a plant that's actually doing it, the physical experience of, it, of the experience, look, it actually works. It's amazing the change and you get this um, incredible positivity that you don't get out of, if you like, two-dimensional images or words or whatever. So the best way we thought ever trying to get change is to get, trying to get politicians and people to go to the new Peabody housing estate that actually totally now runs on solar electricity and everyone saves electricity and it changes behaviour. So seeing the actual real thing is very, very powerful. I think one of the things that it would be great to have, um, sort of Grand Designs Part 2, if you like, is a very accessible character like Jamie Oliver, but not Jamie Oliver, obviously, um, presenting positive stories now about how this technology works, going to transition towns and saying, look, just like Jamie Oliver with food, Here's the problem, but we can do it. The technologies are here, it works, we love it, we save money, it's great. That type of program on, on mainstream programming, for me, would do so much more than a um, hundred messages or brilliant photo photographs, even though that's what I do. Um, it's very powerful. Um, I was just going to, in response to uh, Bob talking about the beauty of wind turbine blades, one of uh, Liberate Tate's pieces in 2012 involved smuggling a 16-metre wind turbine blade into the uh, Tate Modern Turbine Hall, uh, and they installed it there, and also submitted the paperwork under the 1992 Museum and Galleries Act, where you can kind of uh, submit an artwork to be considered as a gift to the nation as part of their, uh, their national collection. And that was very much about that this is an, an object of aesthetic beauty and, and fitting that it should be in a, a space like the Turbine Hall as, as an installation. I don't think it changed anyone's views. You know, I say this is a very sympathetic... No, it's, um, it's, it's so hard to it say with these things. It's so hard to say with these things. I think I had lots of... Uh, I think there's the, there's the aesthetic dimension. I think there's a satisfaction in the, um, the, you know, the, the fulfilment of the 100 people who are involved in it as the installation. Mm -hmm. 
there's the people who saw it in the Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think and it, and it was very kind of widely reproduced. So it has a big ripple out there. What the kind of impacts of that ripple are, I, I personally find very difficult. And I think it's 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 not happening as, as something in isolation. There's a lot of kind of work going on at, at, at the same time around that. I mean, I loved it, but I, I mean, I felt it, it could sink or die by the kind of, the amount of visibility that it yeah. actually achieved, yeah. um, and that's absolutely critical. And it, I suppose it relates to the points Mike. Totally. Uh, so what I was going to say anyway is exactly about that. I did have Braden Smith, associate uh, in the drug department. I think possibly in the discussion in general, we've maybe enlightened a few different sorts of change. Uh, George used the phrase changing values earlier, but Mike has predominantly used the phrase changing behaviour, and Kevin, I think you too. And, and this example seems to be a really interesting example because you said they're changing anybody's, uh, they change anybody. And I think we're maybe not teasing out quite what those different sorts of change are. And I was thinking, I've been thinking about the sort of long durée of the way that art changes values in relation to environment. And if you think over a span of sort of two, three hundred years about the way that art has changed our association with the environment broadly construed, uh, art has clearly played a massive role in changing values about our association with nature and with the environment. What we're talking about here is a very short duration. We're talking about 20 or 30 years of engagement with of art, engagement with climate change as we understand it in a modern sense. Uh, uh, changing behaviour, I don't think art is very good at changing behaviour. Uh, it depends quite what definition we take of art. I think interventions of the kind that platform take do may change behaviour. But art is extremely good at changing values and shifting our values in ways that we might not understand when it's happening. And I think Robert's raised some really interesting examples of the way that theatre can do that. I can think of examples from literature. My background as a literature, of ways that literature can change your values in ways that you don't really understand happening. But changing behaviour, I don't think that's really what art does or should take as its, as its purpose. Well said. As a neutral chair, I'm trying to avoid nodding at any point. I totally agree with that. And it kind of touches on the question I was going to ask. Several of you um, in the presentations made references to, on the one hand, the beauty of the aesthetics, and the other one, the horror and the awfulness of, of, of what was embodied in the images. And of course, these two things go hand in hand, but they're appealing to different aspects of our humanity. And I just wondered whether... Um, one had any thoughts about um, how they are either to be disentangled, whether they should be disentangled, whether one has greater appeal than another, whether they can be disentangled, whether uh, quite quite how what their role is this kind of this completely um, opposite uh, nature is in the whole process of using art uh, in this activist way. I'm going to allow this to be really the last to last, and you don't have to respond, but we'll wrap up, I think, after this. But do you have any responses to Robert? Um, I think the really important um, part of that is to have the duality of the responses. And in having that experience that you have one feeling and you have another, and they don't necessarily um, mix, that allows you a space that sort of opens up there question why do I feel this and this and, and, and it 
it then allows you to think through. And I think that's what art does really well. It brings it can bring together really incongruous things, and it, it places them together. Um, for instance, like with the flooded McDonald's, um, it had something that's really quite surreal and, and, and something that wouldn't necessarily happen, but it makes you think about these really abstract concepts of your consumerism and um, and and um, uh, yeah, consumerism. So I think that's really what it can do: is it, it opens up a space where you have to question why do I feel these two different things and how how can I reconcile them? If I take the plastic work, if I if my life depended on me cutting down the plastic going to the ocean, I wouldn't be making those pictures. I'd be using much more urgent and focused on changing policy. Okay, then. Oh, I'm good. Okay, I'll um, make no uh, attempt to conclude or summarise the meeting. Uh, beyond signal that one of the themes that's come up really strongly is questions around communication. My own suggestion is that if anyone walks up to you and tells you they know how to communicate climate change, they are either a fool or a liar with a very big mortgage. So <laughs> I want to suggest that will be one of the topics we'll address in these kinds of round tables. They were an experiment, the first one we did two ago. Um, they Each one has attracted people from five faculties at the OU, which is its own kind of signal about how this topic speaks to universities and raises sense of uh, engagement with the cultural dimensions. So we are going to keep aspects clearly filling a purpose. Um, and just to signal an advert that a book that Kelly, Braden, myself, Robert, anyone else, uh, has contributed uh, to, um, it will come out uh, in June, and I'll circulate news to the Mediating Change group around the theme of culture and climate change, specifically around the theme of narratives. Uh, and that's also going to be a working document for a, a workshop that Peter is organising for uh, approaching 100 creative writers in London. So uh, I don't think you can thank good speakers too often. So join me one last round, OK?